Acts chapter 4, and uh, we'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning, talking about opposition and offense or offense, depending on the situation, and the stone that builds up or breaks apart. Well, uh, we've all obviously, uh, I think, had the experience of seeing something advertised and um, buying into the hype of that particular thing being the answer to our needs and, uh, and just being way oversold on, on the benefits of something. And um, then when you actually get that item, and uh, it, it's generally not as good as you thought it was going to be. And even if it's everything that you hoped it was, um, the, the novelty eventually wears off and that thing that was shiny and new becomes just commonplace. And uh, it's, just, it's just not all that you had hoped that it would be. And um, this, is, uh, this is important because um, it's the essential ingredient to why we do a lot of our, why we, why we make a lot of the decisions that we make. Um, you think that you, you like Twinkies, but you don't really like Twinkies. The marketing for Twinkies convinced you that that's going to satisfy some other thing, or maybe you really don't like Twinkies, but you get the idea that um, we, um, we can be manipulated because um, there are certain things that, that we want to have uh, satisfied, and so it's quite easy to sell us on something, um, even if we didn't originally think that we wanted it, that... Uh, there's, there's um, some, some ethical parts of, of advertising that happen. You've heard the phrase, hopefully, truth in advertising. You've heard this before. There's very little of it, by the way. <laughs> uh, there's very little truth in advertising. And this is, like, applies across the board, right? Like, um, how many of you guys feel like you get the truth in advertising with politics, right? Politician just comes up, says everything that they're actually going to do, and then follows through with that when they actually get into office, right? Vote for me, and then, Right? No, that doesn't happen, right? And we know this with uh, other products that we buy, that we, uh, we don't often get what we thought we were buying. And so um, this, is, uh, this is key because the question is, uh, what is it that you're buying if you're, if you're buying Jesus? What is it that you're buying if you're buying Jesus? If, if Jesus was, you know, a product and he had a marketer that was representing him, um, the way that he went about marketing himself or, or selling the fact that uh, we should trust him or he, he should be uh, the way was not uh, any of the things that you or I would think would be the way to go about things. In fact, it was quite, quite offensive. And um, this is, this is, a, uh, this is a, a, a bit of a problem for us today because we desperately like, like to like things and we want to be liked. And so what that tends to lead us to do is to soften the reality of who Jesus is and what the gospel really is and what the gospel really means. And uh, this is problematic because it leads to um, planting people in shifting sands instead of on a, a rock, a base. And um, this is exactly what's behind the phrase that Jesus is the cornerstone, which is the, the stone that the builders rejected and is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So he's both the foundation, but he's also the thing that causes other people that don't see him as useful or worthwhile to stumble right over the top of him. And he's both offensive, but he's also the offense, if you will, of the gospel. The, the thing that builds up the kingdom and grows. So um, this is what we see today. And um, Acts chapter 4, we're going to transition uh, from uh, the, the miracle proper into Jesus, or excuse me, into uh, Peter and John before um, the council in, inside the temple. And um, as we're examining this, if we had walked through Acts even two years ago now, that you would, you would struggle to find a way to relate to a lot of the, the controversy that happens um, throughout the church and what seems to be um, society at large. Right, and uh, because because up to I would say I would venture it's a safe bet that none of you have experienced in America any kind of real opposition or let's use the word persecution for your faith, right? In your lifetime, have you? I mean, in a really and a practical would probably not. And in uh, just in the last uh, two years, just barely have we seen the reality that. Um, the church is not a, a wholly separate thing. It, it exists within the world, a political sphere. And as that political sphere bumped up against um, 
a, a largely untouched and unchallenged church over the, case, over the course of COVID, we saw people basically freak out. Uh, have no idea what was right, what to do, should we obey, should we not obey, and uh, what, what's going to happen in the next few weeks of um, Acts chapter 4 is we get to hit some of um, these, these, these places in our, our worldview, in our lives, that we don't often touch, and so um, because of what we've just recently walked through, I think this will help us in, uh, in answering some of the questions that maybe popped up for you along the way. But, but also, and hopefully, my, my goal is to now plant you on the rock instead of whatever you might have been traveling on, this nice sandy white beach that actually is not useful to you. It, it looks nice, and it's comfortable, and they serve drinks with ice in them, but um, that's not where you need to be. You need to have your, your feet planted on the rock, okay? And so, um, I want to very quickly, before we actually get to Acts chapter 4, um, flip over if you uh, can, to, to Mark, or excuse me, to John. And um, starting in John chapter 14, and I'm, not, I'm just gonna sort of summarize uh, whole chapters for you, but if you, do, if you do it by way of looking at sort of the headlines and um, a couple of key verses to jog your memory about what's happening in these verses, or excuse me, these chapters, this will be helpful. So John uh, chapter 14 starts out with this... Um, with this word from Jesus that says, let not your hearts be troubled. We like that, right? But he's, he's starting out with this, um, this precursor, don't, don't be troubled about what's going to happen. And then he goes on to say the ground, the ground for that, that reason, why you, why you should not let your heart be troubled. So he goes on uh, to unpack that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That comes in, uh, at, uh, excuse me, in John chapter 14. But at the end, or towards the end of John chapter 14, right in the middle there, I guess towards the end, um, he begins to talk about the promise of the Holy Spirit, and that the Holy Spirit would come, he would be the helper, he'd be the comforter, he would lead them into truth, um, and that uh, Jesus would not leave them alone. And then, transition to John chapter 15, uh, Jesus begins to talk about the fact that he's not just the way, the truth, and the life, but he's also the vine. That if they should find themselves separated from Jesus and his message, they can't produce anything. Uh, they're worthless, effectively, without his help. But in um, 15, and then starting in verse 18, let's pick it up with a couple of key sentences. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world... And because I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Now just pause for just a second and ask, does the world hate me? And, and however you think that the world does or doesn't hate you, that's probably indicative of a couple other things about our life or your life in particular. Now read verse 22. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know um, him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse. So here's the deal. Jesus sets forth the reality that the world ought to hate you because it hated me first. And then he plugs this thing in and says, is a servant greater than, don't forget I, I asked you this, or I taught you this, that a servant is not greater than its master. And so I ask you this morning, if you're a servant of, of Jesus, how is it that you think that you will escape this predicament that he, that he promises will happen? How, how is it that we, well, there's a few answers for how and why we've escaped it, and they're generally not, um, they're not healthy and they're not good for us. But look down now in verse 26 and 27, because he goes on, the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause, but when the helper comes... That's the Holy Spirit that he just promised. Whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. This is um, Pentecost, what we, we had been reading up to this point in Acts. Um, the, the, wit, the witness will come from the Holy Spirit. And then he says, also, you will be my witnesses in the next verse. Um, because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, um, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. That's 15, chapter 20. And then last part, 16. I said all these things to you 
to keep you from falling away. So Jesus' purpose in walking through this whole thing, don't, don't be troubled. I'm going away. I am the only way, but I'm going to send you a helper. The world has hated me, but I've overcome the world, and the world is going to hate you. But I've said these things to you in advance. I'm, the advertising, the commercial here is, I've given you all of the bad news so that when the time comes, you will not stumble as others will. So keep that in mind. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we um, seek you in your face and your word this morning that you would plant um, us firmly in your truth, that um, we would see the beauty and the invitation and the solid foundation that you offer us in the gospel. Maybe we find our, our feet individually, but as a church also firmly planted in this place. God, I pray that you would challenge us in ways that um, we've maybe faltered in this, been soft, found other ways to um, avoid being like our master. Father, help us to value more um, your opinion of us and not what the world says or thinks. May you do this work for us and in us by your word this morning. So God, I ask that you would um, begin to work in our hearts so that um, the seed of uh, your word is planted in them this morning. May we have hearts of flesh to receive what you would say, ears to hear what you would speak to us. May we behold your beauty in all that you say this morning. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, Acts chapter 4, and um, we're going to go through uh, 16 this morning. Verse 16, it's a little bit and uh, ambitious, but we can, I think we can do it. So um, I'm just going to break it up in a couple, couple of sections as we uh, did last week, and uh, I think that's the useful way to do it so that we can address each thing instead of trying to go back and track over everything. So we are Acts chapter 4, and what's just happened is uh, the man's been healed. They're in the temple. There's a, 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 a crowd drawn. Peter sees the opportunity, and he's going to seize on this opportunity. Uh, it says this, as they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead, or in Jesus' name, depending on what translation you're working with. So these are uh, the, effectively the power brokers of, of the day. And you're about to see uh, in, uh, I believe it's verse 5, there's a few more added in. So let me just read that real quick. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered in uh, Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who are of the high priestly family. So uh, these are effectively, if you want to look at it this way, these, these are not just the religious leaders, but the political leaders of the day. So um, lest we get too far into uh, history, Rome was, was basically uh, ruler by, by vassal territories. So they would in, um, entrust uh, the leadership of a certain area to, yes, a governor, but then the Jews had sort of a special privilege where they were ruled uh, on behalf of Herod, who was uh, the representative. He was a Jew, and he also was sort of the, the political leader of the day. Well, so too are... Um, the Sadducees, these are like a wealthy aristocratic class of people, and they were um, a, political, a political body as much as they were um, a, a religious one. So, um, you know, Israel is, is not just a, um, a political people, they are a, a, a theonomy. They, they believe God is their true political leader, but there are, you know, representatives here, and, and they're pretty much ruled by the law, but um, the priests obviously have a lot of say in what's going on, and the captain of the temple. Now, the captain of the temple was in charge. He'd be like the chief of police, okay? And he was second only to the high priest, and all these people come upon now um, John and Peter teaching a, a giant crowd, which is gathered uh, here in the temple, and we see that um, they're presenting a message, and it says particularly that the Sadducees came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed. They are severely frustrated. Uh, it's it's just a funny word that's included there, just so that you know that it was it was it was like particularly in their soft spot that this was happening. Why? Because the Sadducees uh, believed something in particular about doctrine. See, they only held to. Um, 
a, a very like um, physical view of the world. There were no uh, angels. There was no like um, spiritual realm, if you want to look at it that way. There was just God. There was Torah. That's the teaching of Moses. And uh, so they didn't believe in the resurrection uh, of the dead. And so uh, particularly that now John and Peter are preaching, what does it say? Resurrection in Jesus' name. This is a, a particular point of, of problem for them. And they're greatly annoyed because of it. We see that the overall, that um, the message of the gospel is, is offensive. It's an offending message. It offends those who do not agree with it. And it also um, offends those be, because of the implications of, of of what it says, because of what it means. But it is the message and the means of bringing the kingdom of God. So, uh, you know, without, uh, without context, you read the word O-F-F-E-N-S-E. It could either mean offense, it is something that's moving forward, progressing, scoring points, or it is offense, something that offends you, something that you don't like. And the gospel is both of these things. It is both offensive and it is offensive. And we see that here in just a moment. The primary mission and the information that the church has is the gospel. This is what you're entrusted with. This is what I'm entrusted with. And you really have no other business or duty except for to live by the implications of the gospel. And it offends um, people because of what it is. And if you are now somebody that's in charge of stewarding this message and sharing this message, what, what is the implication of that? That you too are offensive and offensive. And that's important because it, it really gets to the heart of the problem of, of whether or not you will be a victim of, of pragmatism. If, 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 you're, if you're so concerned about being offensive to the outside world that you relinquish some aspect of the gospel and all that it means so that it's a more palatable message to the world. And that is, um, it's rampant. It's, it's uh, probably, the, I would say that's the biggest issue facing particularly the, the Western American church is the compromise of what the true nature of the gospel is. So this is going to get to the heart of it. It's an offensive message and, um, and we, we see John and Peter holding fast to the reality that it is this. They're not doing or teaching anything that um, would be the content of their own words. They're just going straight from Scripture. They're quoting things that would have already been accepted as, as law from God. And they're, they're connecting it to who Jesus is. And the implications of that is, uh, draws back from the last chapter where... Um, we see that those who will not accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, are, are discluded. They're on the outside. And uh, it says anyone who does not obey, M Moses had uh, predicted that another prophet would come. And it says, and any who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. So this is, this is an important word because they're, they're giving this word. And uh, if it's not accepted, then by, by their proclamation, these are um, people that are rejecting God himself. And so um, they're teaching with, with authority and with power, and this threatens those who are in authority and have power, right? And so you see that these, these, these different groups are going to be particularly offended by, by what it is that Peter and John have to say. Well, the, the priests are going to be offended. Why? Well, one, because they're teaching inside of the temple. Whose job is it to teach about who, who God is? Well, it's the priest's jobs. And they're teaching about the resurrection that's available through Christ Jesus. Well, of course, that's going to offend people that don't believe there even is a resurrection. So, of course, the Sadducees are somewhat uh, upset. And then you're going to see here the, the, the main thrust of the question about what are you doing right now is twofold. I believe it's in verse 7. It says this. Uh, nope, verse... Yeah, uh, verse, verse 7. By what power... In what name? By what power and what name? If, if you want to condense those into one, by what authority are you doing what you're doing? What, what gives you the right to say what it is that you think that you can say here? So they're, they're offending the, not just, um, they're not just offending religious people. They're not just offending political people. They're, they're not just offending people that have some metaphysical view about the world. They're, it is attacking an entire worldview. So this is um, something that you need to then back up and, and, and I'm going to say this so that it, it sets the, the stage for the next couple of weeks. Um, 
Jesus is not relegated just to your, your spiritual life. So we, we have a, an, an idea that um, whatever it is that, that happens in here, whatever you believe about the Bible, that doesn't really intersect or overlap with political. I shouldn't say political things. I'm a pastor. Uh, everything that you interact with is part of your worldview. And if your worldview is not shaped particularly by Jesus and is it a biblical worldview, then you're going to make decisions that uh, either accord with the gospel or don't, right? And so all of these things are, are, are in the pool. Are, are, um, they're not up for debate. They're actually settled. But, but the question is whether or not you're abiding by those things. So I want you to see that the entirety of a, of a worldview is, is, in, is in play right now. And so um, particularly you see this play out. Um, as uh, the response to this is their, their demand that they stop teaching. They stop using authority. They stop teaching in Jesus' name. And the, and the response is whether or not they're going to obey man or they're going to obey God. And that doesn't just, that's not just a question for inside these walls. That's a question for your whole life. Is, are, you, are you obeying what man says or what man commands or what they demand or what you think they want from you? Or are you obeying God in, in every area? And that comes down to a worldview shaping question. So the reality is that um, they, have, they have some information, they have a word, they have compelling information, and compelling uh, information is generally tr- truthful information. You can, you can try to tell a good lie, but eventually, eventually you're found out. And um, so, so that is effectively the challenge uh, of what they bring. So what do they do? So they're, they're challenged, they're in power, and they see their, ch- their power being challenged, their worldview being challenged. And so what do they do? Verse 3, they arrested them, and they put them in custody. Um, uh, until the next day, for it was already evening. Now, if you've forgotten or you, you weren't uh, with us, remember they go to the temple at the third hour, that, that's uh, sort of um, at the end of the day, remember, and they intercount it. So the, whatever's taking place in the temple at this point has taken long enough that it is now evening time. And so they arrest them and, and um, they put them away effectively overnight. Now, um, I've not been arrested yet. And I said, yeah, on purpose, not just to be funny. Um, I think, you know, we, we generally believe ourselves to be um, extremely strong. Like, you know, when it comes down, like, we're always in the good guy position. You know, if you, if you tell a story, you read the diary of Anne Frank, you're like, yeah, I'd hide her. Like, we, we tend to want to be the hero of, of stories, right? And the question is, is not whether or not we're willing. I think, I think we're willing to be the hero. The question is whether or not when the moment comes, we have the... the um, strength and the fortitude to stand on what we, we say we're committed to. And so, um, they're, you know, they're arrested and put away. Now, this is just the first encounter that they're going to have where there's lots of people getting arrested and beaten and lots of bad things happening. And so, this is something I said, you know, we, we generally can't relate to right now. And uh, it's interesting, you know, through the course of uh, COVID, how Almost all of the, I don't know if this happened in your house, but in our house, almost every um, discussion we would have, like you'd, you'd watch the news or something, and you'd, it almost always started with, I can't believe, I can't believe X, Y, and Z has happened. Like, did you, would you ever think that, well, and you just like say, did you see that? Or did you, and so um, if, if you think about what's behind that kind of sentiment, I, I think partially, now maybe it was different for you, like it was just like crazy, but I, I think it's the reality that we don't expect, we never expect things to go as quickly as they actually go, right? It, it doesn't seem like it will, we, we would think, how far away is, you know, a Christian being, being jailed for being Christian? You say, that's silly. Like, there's no way. Should, surely there'd be decades leading up to that. There was not. And if you weren't with us, uh, I, I told you guys about the pastor in Canada who was imprisoned because they continued to hold services and, uh, if you, if you want to look it up, just scribble down this name, James Coates, and his testimony about what he did in prison and how that whole thing went is amazing. Um, I have a book, too, that uh, he recounts all. But anyway, so it was, it was within the course of, guys, a month. And so you think, this is silly. Why are we talking about tinfoil hat kinds of conspiracies? And I'll just go back to what Jesus said in John 16, 1, so that when it comes, you will not stumble. So that when it happens, your feet are already planted where they ought to be planted. And there's no question about whether or not you should or should not. And so um, they're arrested and they put them in custody until the next day. I hear that's not fun. So um, 
overall, they, they do it because it, it's, um, it's already evening, and, and so in some ways they're obeying the law here, but I also think they're just trying to kind of like rattling the, uh, they're rattling the saber, if you will, if you know what that, that uh, phrase means. It means they're just trying to get a little bit of fear in them and let them know who's boss, right? Why don't you guys cool off overnight in the pokey, and we'll see how you feel in the morning. So this is exactly what's happened. And so when the power is threatened, the powerful threaten. When powerful people, they're the people that think they hold the power, they usually use power, try to wield that power to threaten other people. And I don't have to plug in every possible scenario. You can rewind in your own brain about things that have happened that are authoritarian in the last few years that you would say, I would have never thought that somebody would say, I can't. Okay? So whatever your fill in the blank there is, why? Because man does not do well with power. And so when they wield it in unrighteous ways, they often do it poorly. And I think there's something to say about the fact that they do it in the cover of darkness. Something like that. Right? Because men hate the light. The light came into the world and it testifies to the fact that they're in the darkness. And so here's what's happened. Their, their power is threatened and so they begin to use whatever's at their disposal to try and quell this worldview exploding message of the gospel. So let's uh, continue because this is... Um, I could have stopped the sermon here, but I won't. Why? Because it says, they, they put him in jail. It was already evening, but verse four. But many of those who heard the word believed. Many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. So effectively, they're restricting this, the count right now just to the men who believed from this word. Many who heard what believed? What did they hear? They heard the word. They heard the word. Everything is centered on the word. They heard the gospel. This is effectively what has just been proclaimed by Peter and John. And if you missed it, it's, it's all of the last, uh, the last chapter. Many who heard the word believed. Why? Because words are powerful. Because words are powerful, which means restriction of words is extremely dangerous. It, it might, I'm not trying to you know, wave, wave the American flag up here. I'm, I'm trying to say that freedom of speech is an important thing. And when you see speech being restricted, that's a dangerous thing. And you, and you should be aware of that. What can and cannot be said, if that's governed or quelled or squelched in some way, that is dangerous. So too is compulsion of speech. So if I'm not offending you yet, maybe I'll offend you now. Here we find ourselves uh, in Pride Month we're supposedly we're supposed to be celebrating a worldview that maybe you totally disagree with. I hope you disagree with. And the fact that if you don't post some picture or celebrate in some way, that is compelled speech because otherwise you'll be what? You'll be canceled. Somebody will say you're, hate, you're hateful. I don't know what, whatever else can be happen to you. But it's not like these things are theoretical, that you can't relate to them. See, it exists right now. It's just a question of whether or not you think it's so superficial that you ought not to worry about it. And that's, that's the problem. That's the problem is that we just say, oh, that's not that bad. Oh, but when it, when it really comes down, then I'll be ready. And the, the truth is, if you're not faithful in the small way, I promise you won't be strong enough to be faithful in the big way. It's, ju it's just a rule of life. So compulsion of speech is dangerous. So too is redefining language. Well, that, that doesn't mean that anymore. Gender doesn't, gender's a social construct. It doesn't mean anything. It means something. It has to mean something. Otherwise, words have no value. There's no communication. It clearly means something. But when you begin to make it ambiguous, then any can, anything can mean everything. Can it not? And everything can mean anything. And so it really doesn't matter. Nobody can make a particular claim to truth unless words actually mean something. And they do. So condemning ideas while promoting a certain ideology it's just a totalitarian, a totalitarian way to, 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 to quell an idea that you disagree with. And depending on your involvement in social media or whatever spheres that you find yourself interacting with other people that aren't in this room right now, you've, you've encountered this in some way. And so the question is, what do you, what do, you do with that? Or how, what do you see it for? And I, I want you to see it for what it is. It is a, it's a worldview in conflict with truth. It is a worldview of Satan and the devil and his minions and his children in conflict with what God said is true. 
And so the question is, what will you do with that when you encounter it? It's all centered on our grounding and holding fast to the word. It doesn't say that the people saw the miracle and believed God. It does not say that many who agreed with the political views of Peter and John then agreed to join the church. It does not say they had donated money, they liked the coffee, they were moved by the music. It does not say they liked the programs or that they liked the building or there was a long history. It doesn't say they liked the doctrine or that they liked the particular denomination. It says they heard the word and believed. They find common ground on truth because truth is compelling and powerful. So the question is, what is truth or what will you hold fast to? Well, here we're implored that it's the word that causes belief. It's the word that causes belief. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I said, I think, you know, the biggest problem that the church faces today, when I say the church, I mean the collective church, is, is not believing that right there. We think there's, a, there's probably a thousand ways to market Jesus better than the gospel. And we think if we can convince people to like Jesus before they know Jesus, then we can get them to join the church. But the power of God to salvation is the gospel. There is, there is no other thing that you can give. There's nothing, there's no help that you can give the gospel that will improve it, make it better. And if you, if you do change it or alter it in some way, it's no longer the gospel. The, the gospel is what it is. And it's the, the means um, that, that, that God has given us and we ought not to move from that. I should have just stopped at four because I could preach on that for longer, but I won't. Let's keep going. So it says on the next day, um, oh, whoa, whoa, let, let me throw this slide up for you. So the gospel is, besides being offensive, right? It is, so because it offends, the implication of the gospel is this, what? You're, you're a sinner in need of a savior. And that's, that's an offensive message. I feel like I'm a pretty good guy, a pretty good girl. I, I don't know that I need somebody to save me. Maybe I need some help or something like that, you know? Inherent in the gospel is that you need a savior. Okay, so that's an offensive message, but it's also what? The means of salvation. It is the means of advancing the kingdom. So it's the offensive weapon that we have. It is the, 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 the thing that Jesus gives. Go preach, teach to obey, and even the gates of hell cannot withstand the offense of the church moving forward. Why? Because the gospel is effective. The message itself brings about the effect. And the effect, you might think, is Oh, I, people should accept Jesus then, right? If the, if, the, if the gospel's working, then it's about people um, accepting Christ. And that's true, but there's, there's, the, there's a second side to that, right? There's two sides to that door. If they don't accept, then what are they doing? They're, they're rejecting that same word. And this is also bringing about an effect. So at, at, uh, by any measure, the gospel is always effective. It's either, it's either bringing about um, acceptance or rejection, Right? And, uh, and you're not responsible for that. What you are responsible for is letting it be a, a, a genuine acceptance or rejection. Don't, don't allow people to reject some other thing that you're trying to sell them, the timeshare of eternity, rather than the gospel. Let them ex accept Jesus as their savior or not. Are you, are you checking with the, 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 the need, the absolute essential need for that to stay as pure as it can? Because the heart either is prepared and drawn or it says, I don't need that and I don't want it. It does not need addition or editing. Let's keep moving on verse five. The next day, um, the rulers and the elders, they gathered together in Jerusalem, okay? And uh, this is uh, rumbling, overtones of the exact thing that sort of uh, uh, happened to Jesus as it's, as it's recollected by Peter later, that gathered in the holy city were all these people against, against the Christ to crucify, to bring about what God's plan had been. So um, again, they gather in Jerusalem and Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and Hall, who are of the high priestly family. That's not like a, an innocuous detail. So um, the, 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 the high priestly family was sort of like the, uh, they were just in power for generations. 
And so what we see here is that um, the, the priestly family who, who rejected Jesus as the high priest, who, who sort of orchestrated all of the things that we know to bring about the crucifixion, is here present to hear and to be, to be part of this rejection of, of uh, Christ truly and again. So verse seven, and when they had set them in their midst, Okay, so this is referring to like a, a council, a, a courtroom again. So Peter is just um, presented uh, amongst the temple through all the people that were gathered, right? He kind of presented uh, a witness, an authority, which is what Jesus said would happen when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses. And so he does. He makes that witness and he talks about um, who, who, who Jesus is. But now they set them, this is in a private setting, okay? And so this is just the power. So think about this as like the Supreme Court. And here we are at the Supreme Court hearing. And they set them in their midst and they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Preaching in, in the name of Jesus is uh, the assertion of the authority of, of Jesus as God. And uh, this is uh, what's so masterful about how Peter presented um, God, the, the God that they knew, Yahweh God being the God of our fathers. And then he then equates that to Jesus whom they rejected and he, he's now drawn these as synonymous. And so they, they want to know, by what power, what name did you do this? And this is not a new question. This is a question that Jesus had answered over and over for the miracles that he had done. And for healing on the Sabbath. And for uh, clearing out the temple. And for teaching what he taught from Isaiah. They, they always want to know, what, how is it that you think that you can say what you're saying? And so the question is, how will authority be responded to? And what you're going to find out is that... Um, don't, I, I, if this term's loaded, I'm sorry, but don't whitewash this, this council. This is, this is a wicked gathering. It is not a good thing. It is not, it's not we, we would think, well, if a bunch of, you know, Christians got together to talk about something, this, this isn't what's happening. This is a, a, a group of people who have rejected the Messiah, who have rejected the testimony of God himself. This is my son. This is, this is the Christ, okay? And so because of that, this, this gathering um, together is, is a bad thing and, the, and they're challenging effectively the authority. And so how do you respond to authority? Well, you do it with authority. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter, famous for popping off the mouth uh, without the Holy Spirit, had some responses, right? Like all the time about a lot of things. This is such an important thing that, um, that I don't want to gloss over it because in uh, Luke chapter 12, um, Jesus predicted this exact moment. So here it is in Luke chapter 12. It says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is important because the council that they're in has rejected the testimony of, the Holy, uh, of God himself and uh, Jesus. And now here's the Holy Spirit through Peter about to testify again. But um, now verse 11. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. I wonder how much time you, you think about if, um, if somebody asks me, like we're, we're afraid to even share our testimony. Like what church do you go to? Well, when you say church, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, would, would you defend in the face of scrutiny and persecution? Um, and how would you defend the gospel? How would you defend Jesus? Well, he doesn't, he doesn't need you to come up with some eloquent speech to, you know, systematically, point by point, defend the gospel. It says, you're, you're prepared with all that you need with the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you should say. It's funny if you read, um, it's funny if you read like accounts of martyrs in uh, missionaries. And uh, one of the ones that uh, is coming to mind at the moment is uh, uh, from the book of Revelation. I, I think I handed it out to you guys um, and I, his name just slipped my brain. But as, as, he's, uh, as he's being martyred, there's, there's, uh, it always seems to be some great one-liner that's just like, it echoes into eternity as the way that, um, that God makes his point. That though you think you're succeeding in this, you're absolutely not. And um, 
I'm sorry that I brought it up now because I don't have the exact quote. But the, the um, it'll come to me right when I don't need it. So I'll, I'll probably say it out loud. But um, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit is, is like a great, you know, SNL writer of old who just will fill you with the right words to answer at the, at the appropriate way with the appropriate tone. And here, there's a little bit of, if you want to say it this way, sarcasm. Because if you look at... Um, what Peter says once he's filled with the Holy Spirit, um, it's in verse nine. He addressed the rulers of people and the elders. If we're being examined today for a good deed done to a crippled man and by what means this has been healed. Okay, so he's, he's pointing out the fact that they've done, they done something good and not something bad. So he, he says, you've, you've, hauled us, you've arrested us and you've hauled us before this council to make this great inquiry for doing something good. Are we, just so we're clear on that, this is effectively the tone that's happening right now. So are we on trial for, uh, for doing a good deed? This is an important point of, of separation because uh, Paul admonishes us to, as the opportunity presents, do good to all, right? Be, be at peace with those if you can. Be, be about the work of, of being holy and righteous and, and do good so much as it's up to you and be at peace with other people. But like being, so, so, so the, like being needlessly offensive or needlessly militant is not, not the way to approach most people. But clearly that's not what's happened here. They've done something grand by the work of God, by his hand. And, uh, and for this reason, they're being scrutinized. And it's important that they put that on display. So if you're hated, first of all, let it be for something good. And I think that's really important because we, we can be hated for a lot of things. And um, if we acquiesce or we kind of compromise the message to not be hated, it's generally because we're, we're, we're trying to agree with the world on something they say is good. Some activity that they say is appropriate. Some activity that they want you to do. And when you, you move to this position thinking you're doing something good, you're absolutely not. And, and so this is the movement that if, if it's actually doing something good to stay here, to stay in, in the position in the point where, um, where God is commanded. And uh, if I'm beating this horse, I'm glad. I'll keep staying on it. <laughs> so, um, so if we're being examined concerning a good deed by what means it's been healed, let it be known to you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, um, by this... Um, by his name, this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. So he, he, he goes and he, um, he quotes this psalm, Psalm 118, which is uh, this, the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And uh, again, if you weren't here last week, I talked about there's an important transition happening that's taking place sort of uh, sub-narrative, which is the transition from the temple proper to the fact that the, the church is now the temple of God. And we as individual believers with the Holy Spirit residing in us is the temple of God. And so the, the actual location of where God's presence is, is, is moving. And this is important because um, Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. And then Paul tells us that the apostles and the prophets are that, that foundation that's laid for us. And we are built upon that. And he's now declaring to these people that the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, the builders are supposed to be the people that know how to put the building together. They're supposed to pretty readily be able to identify the cornerstone. If, you're, if your contractor doesn't know where the foundation goes or what the foundation looked like, find a different contractor. Okay? So here he is accusing these guys. You, you guys were supposed to be the builders and you rejected the very thing that this thing is built upon. Why? Because there is salvation in no one else and there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we can be saved. Christ is the cornerstone. Besides that passage in, uh, in Psalm 118, Isaiah 8.13 predicts this moment as well. It says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So, so don't be worried about other people. Don't be worried about man. And he will become, listen, Isaiah 8.13 now verse 14, and he will become a sanctuary. He won't, he won't be in a sanctuary. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is who's gathered here. The, 
the inhabitants of Jerusalem, those uh, both houses, every, everyone is here that matters, and here they are fulfilling what Isaiah said would happen. That as the Lord becomes, not, a, not in a sanctuary, but the sanctuary himself, you're going to stumble over this stone. And many shall stumble on it, and they shall fall. And not just the fact that they fall. It, 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 it is destruction. The stumbling creates destruction. It says they fall, and they shall be broken. And they should be snared, and they should be taken. Jesus himself says the same thing in Luke 20. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. When it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So Jesus is the stone that either builds up, it's either the foundation, he's either the cornerstone on which the church is built, and you see that and you accept it, and you hold fast to that, or he's the stone of offense that you tumble over and, and it crushes you and, de- and defeats you, if you want to say it that way. He's preaching here, Peter, is the exclusiveness of Jesus for salvation. Uh, I, want to re- I want to read it to you. In verse uh, 12, there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The bad news is the good news. Yes, you need a savior, but there is, there is a way. Yes, there, there is a name given, but there's only one name given. And it's, it's not the way that you're approaching it. It's not any other method. It's not other means. There's only one way, and the exclusiveness is presented here. And you can either reject it or you can accept it. So the gospel is not to be thought of as one idea amongst a marketplace of other ideas. And we need to help sell the gospel. The gospel does all the selling and all the dividing on its own if it's presented like this. If it's presented as, as a necessity and a priority and without, exclu- without, without any asterisk or amendment, it is what it is. The church, through a series of self-imposed restrictions has so softened on this point because we desperately want to be liked by the world. And what Jesus promised is that the world hated me and if you're like me, it will hate you. So if the world doesn't hate you, why not? That's not a, that's not a, that's not a question I'm going to plug answers in for you. So you you need to ask that question of yourself and of us as a church. Jesus promises that if he's lifted up, he will draw men to himself. In John chapter 12, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. This is not a carte blanche endorsement for any method of lifting Jesus up. Because importantly, he connects it to his death. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus makes the statement specifically in reference to his being lifted up on the cross. So that if you're elevating Jesus and you want Jesus to draw people, it's not Jesus in a neon sign because he's being lifted up and he'll draw men to himself. It's the cross being lifted up and Jesus draws men through that. It's the cross as the central aspect of the drawing work of the gospel. Paul says the same idea like this. I was determined to know nothing. He said, I didn't come with eloquent speech. I didn't come with fancy and lofty ideas. I was determined to know nothing among you and preach nothing except for Christ and him, him crucified, him as the, the, the propitiation, him as the, the, the payment for you. It's, which is the implication, by implication, you need payment. So the central aspect of Jesus' work has to remain at the center of the gospel. Yes, 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 there's benefits. Yes, God loves you. Yes, there's eternal life. Yes, it's bliss and we can't fathom it. But that, that's beyond the center point of the cross. Don't lose focus on that. So the question is, what is it that we put on display? What do we believe will draw men to God? 
or if you want to put it this way, how will men be drawn, or women, be drawn to the church? What is it that we think that we ought to do to try and to get them here? Well, you've been given all the answers. We've been given all the material. The question is whether or not we're, we're doing a, a job of it. And, uh, and, and we don't have to be responsible. We have to be faithful. You, you are, the fruitfulness of the gospel is totally up to God. If he brings fruit from it, amen. If it, if it seems to be not a, a bountiful season, it's, it may be bountiful somewhere else. And right now where the gospel seems to be compromised here in the Western church, we, we find great difficulty in bringing new people with just the gospel. But that's not the case in China. Where it's not, hey, come to my church because we got this banging children's program. Do you understand that the things that we think of as marketing Jesus is, is not, it's, it's, it's such a small window in the breadth of the history of God's people. That this iteration and in this cultural phenomenon, it's, it's silly. And if I could convince you, even after a lifetime of experiencing it, to, to put it away as the, the superficiality that it, that it is. Now, I'm not saying if you had great gospel preaching, that was superficial. I'm saying the other thing that was put on top of it to try and get more people in the doors. I believe that what, what God has done is um, exactly what Jesus predicted in the parable that, um, of the wise man who built his house upon, upon the rock so that the things that can be shaken will be shaken. If, 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 your, if your agreement, if your commitment, if your feet are planted on something that is not solid, something other than the gospel, yeah, the slightest shift in culture, the slightest bit of opposition, a little negativity, you're, you'll give, you'll fold. So I hope that this morning, I, I'm not trying to condemn everybody. I'm trying to challenge us to ask the question, do we believe the word that Jesus says. One, that the word is enough, that the word is powerful, that the gospel is enough, that we can hold fast to that. And do we think that we're, is, is the servant greater than the master? And that it should be absolutely not. So do we look like our master? Are we treated like our master? Does the world see us to look like our master?